Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I'm very excited. Sitting across from me today is someone who has been drunk for a week because they went to the Golden Globes to accept an award. Gabe Sherman, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So Gabe is a, do you want to just tell us a little bit about, just for the listeners out there, who you are, why you're here, why you're still drunk? (laughs) So uh, yeah, so um, Nick and I are colleagues at Vanity Fair, um, where I'm a special correspondent and uh, cover uh, Trump world, uh, among other things. And um, I'm in LA this week uh, because a uh, limited series, The Loudest Voice, which aired on Showtime over the summer, um, was nominated for two Golden Globes, and Russell Crowe, who played uh, Roger Ailes, took home the Golden Globe for uh, Best Actor in a Limited Series. So um, it was um, sur- you know, it's surreal seeing your, your journalism turned into, uh, into drama, and then even more so when, uh, when you win an award for it. So wait, I, we have, I have tons of questions about Iran, about the White House, about Trump, about... We're going to get yeah. into all of it. Um, and, uh, but I, I want to know, what's it, so what's it like when you go to the Globes? Like, do you, is, do you, do, is there food? Is there alcohol? Like, is everyone nice yeah. to you? So like, I felt like I had my, like, my uh, anthropological lens on because, you know, it was my first time going to anything like that. And, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I, you know, you, I read some articles before the Globes saying how the... Um, the Globes were, were having a vegan-only menu to like lower the carbon footprint of uh, the Golden Globes. And I was laughing because it took us an hour to go from our hotel in Beverly Hills in a, um, in a you know, big gas-guzzling car from, uh, from the hotel to the, to the Globes itself. And there was you know, a parade of probably 150 SUVs all waiting to get into the Globes. <laughs> so I think our combined carbon output of the, just the half a mile drive like, exceeded whatever savings of not serving a, a steak dinner. Um, but it was, uh, no, it was totally surreal. You, get, you see you know, walking the red carpet, the gauntlet of, you know, hundreds of photographers, you do see, you know, the, how Hollywood, you know, is even in this, this age where, you know, only superhero movies seem to get made. It is still, you know, kind of the cultural nerve center of, uh, of the world and, and how much attention people actually still pay to, um, to the entertainment business. Um, and then, you know, just the ceremony itself is... is so are you like, are you uh, people, are you float in through like, is everything orchestrated? Yeah, you know, like you a- had, uh, we had a, a minder from um, a, a woman who worked at Showtime who net helped us a guide through the, through the gauntlet of photographers. And we're obviously, my wife and I, who was, uh, my wife, Jennifer Stahl, was a, a writer on the show. We're obviously not famous enough where anyone wants to take our pictures. So we didn't actually 
do the like, you know, turn for the cameras sort of thing. We were, you know, walked through and then there was like a, a, a photo booth where, um, you know, the, the civilians get their picture taken. And then um, and then we went on and the, the ceremony itself is there's, there's a, a funny little aside. I <clears throat> the first time I had to go to the Vanity Fair, a, a Vanity Fair event where there was a red carpet and I didn't know what okay. to do because there's a red carpet. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what, am I supposed to stop? What, they're not going to take my picture. And I stopped in the middle looking around, like figuring out where the yeah, hell yeah, am I supposed to go? Yeah. And all these photographers are screaming at me yeah. they're like get the fuck, fuck out of the way move yeah. and I'm like what and I look over and I'm like literally almost standing on top of Oprah <laughs> get out like, of the frame sorry yeah so then um, so then you're all ushered into the ballroom um, at the Beverly Hilton and um the uh, because it's aired at eight o'clock on the East Coast, the the ceremony starts at five, and there's a cocktail hour before, um, and everyone mingles by the bar during the cocktail hour, which is when they serve food at the tables because the TV producers don't want to see like celebrities getting salad in their teeth. So, so you're not allowed to eat when the show is pretty going much on. not. I mean, they have like a little finger food and some cookies, but like the actual dinner is like at three o'clock in the afternoon, but no one sits down. So, you know, I had a few drinks at the cocktail hour and then you sit down for this three hour ceremony where they have giant magnums of Moet champagne, but no food. So I had, you know, like eight drinks on an empty stomach. And by the end of the night, like the room was spinning. <laughs> um, but it is kind of this amazing thing where, you know, all of the biggest actors in the world, both from TV and film are, are in one room together. And I was, you know, in the bathroom washing my hands and I see like Leo DiCaprio come out of the stall and you're like, wow, celebrities do have to go to the bathroom too. True, they <laughs> They're do, just they like do, us. They do have to pee and poop <laughs> yeah. just like all of us human beings. Um, so um, it is like those are the kind of those little human moments that make it uh, memorable. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I woke up the next morning having a, since I have a two-year-old at home, I don't go out much and with the, the, biggest hangover I had probably since college so so one question I have just from a like political standpoint about about the ceremony and and what's going on you, you so you know this is happening on the backdrop of like Iran preparing mm -hmm. to drop some some yeah. some bombs in in on a, a, a American base in Iraq and you've got you know the the whole culture of Trump and like you've got so, you, so on one hand you've got a lot of celebrities that care and a lot of celebrities that don't care is there kind of like a, a, a feeling from your just from your perspective like being in Hollywood that that people think that they can still affect change from this industry or is it still is it like that the world has changed so much that no one can I mean I feel like judging by the fact that uh, you know s some of the uh, award winners you know use their speech again to kind of make a political point that you know Hollywood still thinks it you know, speaks from a, a platform where they can influence culture. Um, but, you know, during the cocktail hour, um, I saw that the Republican pollster Frank Luntz was there, um, of all people at the Golden Globes. And I went, you know, right up to him and was immediately we were, you know, talking politics. And, and I asked him, um, you know, from his focus groups, do you think the Iran uh, attack helps or hurts Trump? And he thinks he thought it helped him. Uh, because, you know, generally in a, in a time of war, voters tend to rally around the president. But then at the same time, I was asking him, when was the last time he saw Trump? And he said, oh, he ran into him at the White House Christmas party. And uh, Frank Luntz was saying how he asked the president, you know, what does the J and Donald J. Trump stand for? And Trump uh, said, genius. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, yes, uh, hearing that gave me you know, minor palpitations and anxiety attack that that's the guy who is running our Iran campaign. <laughs> that is the most amazing. 
So just you know, think about that when you see the president uh, yeah. making decisions about war and peace. Uh, does Luntz think that, uh, did you ask him if he thinks that Trump's going to win again? You know, he said it's 50-50 um, and he thinks it's a, a decent <laughs> I chance. So. can't believe that. <laughs> What a country. <laughs> Did Luntz correct him on his spelling, or did he? No, just... I mean, I think it was, uh, <laughs> I brought the high podcast yeah. to a halt. Yeah, this is it. Um, all right, so, <laughs> I mean, if I was across from him and he said that to me, I would I would just start laughing. I like, know. I don't know how you can, like, keep I a know. straight face. Uh, um, and, you know, there's a pretty good chance that Trump believes that's how you spell it. That's exactly right. I mean, that's why I think that the why we're both laughing because we're trying not to cry is like the truth is that it probably, yeah, it's probably true. He thinks it is with a J. Um, okay. So uh, let's move on to Donald Trump, Iran, and so on and so forth. So you covered um, mm-hmm. what's been going on. There's a there's a perspective that it that what has happened with Iran was was a complete fuck up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a perspective that uh, some people say that it was intentional and that Trump doesn't care. There's also you know the typical chaos. What is it that you've heard from inside the White House about like, how this took place and if they expected it and so on? I mean, what I've heard um, is that you know basically Trump has been talking about killing this guy Soleimani for a while. I think. Um, you know, Trump did not like, from what I've heard, how the press covered his decision not to attack last year when they shot down one of our drones. You know, the perception was that he was looking weak. And I think the pretext and the and the embassy protests and the idea that this would be Trump's Benghazi, I think, tipped him over the edge, from what I've heard, to, to make a decision that both Barack Obama and George W. Bush, and you know whatever people think about Obama's politics, George W. Bush was clearly um, not a dove. I mean, the Bush was not willing to take that step. I think Trump was, um, you know, deciding that this was going to be his line in the sand. And now we're living with the consequences. And we, maybe we can talk a bit about your piece about. I mean, everyone I talk to doesn't think this is the last. You know, Iran's you know volley of of rockets is not really the last word on this. And this was just. The beginning of what will be a longer term response. But the one thing that I find interesting is, you know, there was, they did warn America that they were going to do the bombing. Like it's, it seems like a lot of it's theatrics mm-hmm. for, for the public. I mean, you for can, their internal audience. But their internal audience, um, I, and, if the if it's theatrics from from our perspective, yeah. like Trump looks weak, right? Yeah. Because he doesn't respond. Fine. He said all is good on Twitter and yeah. so on. You know, I think that. Um, uh, I but I do think that it's not the end of it. I mean, one thing that that is fascinating to me is as someone who's written about Twitter for so long and and the impact that social media has had on that country. And, you know, 15 years ago, there was the beginning of this kind of rise where people were trying to push for change. Mm-hmm. And now you're having it again. And then and then we kill their general and um, and the whole country comes together. I mean, it's like it reminded me of 9-11. I think what was what was Bush's rating before 9-11? It was like 21 percent. And then after 91, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, it's like it seems like it was a a dumb decision made kind of on a whim or 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 was it? I mean, I feel like Trump's bet, and um, I'm skeptical of this, and you know, I preface all this by saying I'm, I'm a reporter who covers you know, national politics. I'm not a Mideast expert, but you know, from the people who are Mideast experts, you know, they say, well, you know, Trump has so weakened their economy with this maximum pressure campaign and the sanctions that Iran doesn't have the, 
you know, economic ability to wage a conventional war that Trump's bet is that they're in such a, a weakened state that even if they wanted to respond with an all out assault, um, uh, they wouldn't be able to. But I think what they've shown an ability to do, and this is what is unsettling to me, because I don't think the, the Trump White House has any sense of a coherent strategy is, you know, they have asymmetrical ways of hitting back. And, you know, these drones that the, they that they've invented that can hit the Saudi oil facilities for, you know, hundreds of miles away or their cyber abilities. I mean, they can make life miserable for the countries around them. And I think that is, you know, Trump wants to get out of the Middle East, but he's now done something that could get us entangled there for another 20 years. One of the things I've always found fascinating is about 10 years ago, I uh, met someone who works in China-U.S. relations, and, um, and I was asking, you know, what the difference approach, different approach to warfare is. And this person said that, you know, we, we look at things as like big and boom, and that's it. And in China, they look at things individually, right? It's, yeah. and, and, and their warfare approach is the same way. So we will build a $2 billion bomber, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they'll build um, uh, 100,000 drones for the same price. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there's, that the next iteration of warfare is actually going to be, you know, small versus large and so on. And I think that, you know, uh, the, you're completely right. Like when you look at what, what, what Iran is capable of, uh, it, sure, it may not, they may not be able to drop a nuke. Who knows? Maybe they could on LA or New York, but they can definitely inflict massive harm economically, which is, which is how they get Trump, you know, how they really hurt him, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in one with, you know, with drones that probably cost a couple hundred thousand dollars each, they were able to knock out 5% of the world's oil supply, you know, temporarily. So this is, it's a case where um, technology has disrupted, you know, every other industry. And it's makes sense that it would disrupt, um, you know, these, these big analog weapons are, you know, kind of redundant in an age where, I mean, they like we've talked about this a little bit as well. I mean, they could knock out maybe our power grids if we they wanted to. We would obviously strike back, but you don't need to have aircraft carriers to inflict pain on your your enemies. Yeah, I wrote this piece this week about um, the cyber approach that they may take, uh, which was fascinating, and spoke to a former State Department official who explained that. You know, each country has the ability now to 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 inflict massive harm from a cyber perspective, and it's just a matter of deciding which approach they want to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, there's as you said, like I don't think that the story is done with with Iran as far as that that is concerned. Yeah, hey, I've always wondered too, like you know, how Iran. You know, they say um, that you know, Iran, North Korea, and China and Russia are really kind of the world's leaders in, in, in hackers and, and cyber experts. And I always wonder if that's, you know, I mean, these are very educated populations, but, you know, how these countries, you know, develop such superior um, uh, abilities that, you know, go beyond their, you know, where they are in other spheres, you know? I think one thing that you, one thing that happens is, there's a great saying in business and cybersecurity that um, that uh, every company's been hacked. There are just if you haven't, you just don't know you've been hacked yet. Yeah. Uh, and it's essentially saying that we're at, there's vulnerabilities everywhere. Like when you look at what what I've always found so fascinating is the way that hackers get into systems. Like there's these great stories of like you know the 
there was these hackers that dropped um, USB drives mm-hmm. in front of a, a bank building and a government building. And, uh, and of course, someone picks one up, puts it in their computer, mm-hmm. and it and puts software on their computer yeah. that breaks into a system. Like, and that's it. They get control. Like, what, what's really interesting, um, I'm sure you remember this, in 2013, um, Adelson, mm-hmm. uh, the... Um, uh, the casino magnet um, who was very pro-Israel was talking shit about Iran and saying that we, you know, we should drop bombs oh, on them. Yeah. Um, uh, Iran responded by first saying that he should be slapped in the mouth um, and then by hacking into his casinos yeah. and they took the whole system offline and it cost $40 million to fix it. Yeah. Um, and I think that what Iran is capable of is um, is vandalism mm-hmm. almost like yeah. on that level. Um you know the power grid stuff is terrifying, and I've I've written a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it. You know their goal is is economic yeah, um, yeah. harm, and that's the way they can do it. Yeah. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella, putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. What's the what's some of the stuff that's going on inside the White House now? Um, you know, as we enter twenty twenty, mm-hmm. we you know you're, we're we're gearing up for this election. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, discussion about like the approach based on who wins. Um, is there going to be kind of a you know? It actually, funnily enough, seems like there haven't been that many people pushed out lately. Mm-hmm. Um, what's kind of the what are you hearing about about Trump's approach? in light of impeachment and um, in the coming election about how he's going to kind of navigate the next few months. I mean, I think the, the, the approach has been pretty much decided from uh, the inauguration when he gave that American carnage speech. I mean, Trump's only political strategy is to play to the base and to get, you know, his base so fired up and so terrified of the, of Democrats that they'll turn out. Um, and, you know, I think that and Trump people talk about, you know, that the thing that scared the most and then maybe this is changing because, you know, Biden has been, um, you know, he's clearly not the same candidate he was um, previous cycles. But, you know, Biden is a much harder sell because he appeals to kind of those, you know, blue collar, white Catholic union voters in Michigan and Pennsylvania that Trump t- took back in, in 16 but if you get Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, I mean, they talk about how, especially Elizabeth Warren is like the dream candidate for them. 
because um, the contrast is just so much, and it would be, you know, Trump can can make his base turn out. Is is Trump worried about Bloomberg? You know, I don't hear really anything about Bloomberg from uh, from Trump world or you know from from people around the 2020 cycles. Um, and I think that's, you know, because, you know, Bloomberg's really not playing in, in Iowa or New Hampshire. I mean, he has this, you know, bank shot Super Tuesday strategy of trying to win California and, and, the, and the big coastal states. Um, but, you know, from, from what I hear, you know, Bloomberg is not a, a primary source of, of, of concern. Um, Do you think that he can, Bloomberg can... I mean, look, I think I don't believe, and this is total just, you know, conjecture, but I don't believe that in the current state, Warren could beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, um, I don't believe that. You mean Warren beat Trump? Beat Trump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't believe, I think that Bernie would have a really hard time simply because of his age yeah. and um, his health issues. Um, I think. Um, uh, Buttigieg, it's like it's literally close your eyes and throw the dart. Mm-hmm. You just, it's just, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, I think he would, he would bring out some of the younger voters, but I don't think he is. You know, there's going to be a lot of people who, who might be centrist and 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 not not like him. Um, and it seems like, and Biden. Look, I think yeah. Biden is just a. He shouldn't have entered the race mm-hmm. personally. Um, uh, and I, I would be pretty bummed if he was the next president. I would be less bummed than if he were than if Trump were the next president yeah. but I don't think that he's you know an effective um uh candidate but I think that when it comes to Bloomberg like he seems like someone who Trump can't necessarily criticize that mm-hmm. easily um you know he's worth but how do you I mean the the near term question is how does a candidate like Bloomberg you know get out of a democratic primary when yes on climate change um Jonathan Chade had a piece this morning in in New York Magazine that sort of touches on some of these ideas. But um, you know, how does a candidate like Bloomberg, who yes, he is um, you know progressive and very much a leader on you know climate issues, but on all other issues, Wall Street, financial regulation, tech regulation, um, uh, taxes, criminal justice with stop and frisk. You know, he is so far to the right of where the Democratic Party is. I just don't see him winning the primary. Um, you know, he, he could be a great general election candidate probably, but you got to win, you got to win the nomination. And I don't see him, um, being able to peel away voters from Bernie or, or Warren. Um, but isn't the problem right now with the democratic process that the democratic party, the democratic process that with 2020, that the, um, that the Democratic Party doesn't know if they want to reform the party or if they want to beat Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they don't get to do both, Yeah. right? Um, and so- Which seems to me so insane because, you know, we all agree that, you know, the Trump presidency is, is a national emergency. And if you want to reform the party, you have to deal, it's like the firefighter who, you know, shows up at the blazing fire and is like, oh, well, we really need to have better building codes to- to uh, prevent fires. But yes, but you first have to put the fire out. And the idea that Democrats are having this purity argument where they're saying we have to blow up the system to really, you know, pull the party left and, and, and start over is not acknowledging the reality that we're all living in now. And, and I think that is the, you know, Democrats have had a unique ability 
to snatch um, defeat out of the jaws of victory. I mean, you had in 2004, George W. Bush was you know already a deeply unpopular war president. There was no WMDs. It was so clear that um, the Iraq uh, invasion was a nightmare. And, you know, John Kerry just couldn't get over the finish line. And um, and so uh, we have elections. And if you go back um, in earlier cycles, you had, you know, Michael Dukakis against George H.W. Bush. I mean, you had a lot of weak candidates and the Democrats just can't seem to produce. It's rare that they produce a candidate like like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama that um, that, you know, seems appealing to a broad slice of the of the country. When you um, talk to people uh, close to the White House, um, one question that I still can't get out of my mind is um, is that one of the one of the worst people um, in the administration besides Trump um, is you know you've had everyone who's been evicted and fired and pushed out except for Stephen Miller. Mm-hmm. And why? How did he? Man- He's not that fucking smart. Like how did he manage to stick it out? And do people like him in the White House? Like what's the deal with him? Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, he uh, he is really Trump's id on on kind of the core issue that tethers Trump to his base, which is the the immigration stuff, and and so he serves a purpose for Trump um, that you know tr- without I think without Miller, you know, Trump would lose that kind of connection to the you know the the populist right-wing Breitbart audience that Trump um you know Trump ran ran with in 16 and you know Miller is also uh, by and large Trump's chief speechwriter so you know Trump needs them around because you know when he gives these rallies I mean Miller is is really the first draft of those speeches or when he wrote that crazy letter to to Pelosi um, about the uh, the impeachment trial, you know, Miller was one of the writers on that. So I think you know Miller has a utility to Trump, and he doesn't um, he doesn't challenge Trump in a way that say John Kelly did or or Rex Tillerson or you know Jim Mattis or any of these other senior officials that have been pushed out. I mean, Miller stays in his lane, and his lane is a lane that Trump is happy with. So I feel that that explains his his longevity. Um, in Trump world. One of the things that I found fascinating about about the Iran story with Trump was that he was unsure, a report that I read, that he was unsure if um, he was going to, how he was going to retaliate to Iran. And there was some Fox News correspondence that said that he should, that he, they, he shouldn't go to war with mm-hmm. Iran, that it would just be another Middle East. And he actually said publicly that that played. Yeah, a- the Tucker, this was the previous time, the Tucker Carlson yeah. stuff. Yeah. Is, um, you know, is the, as someone you've covered mm-hmm. Fox for how many years now? Too many, at least uh, going on 10 years now. Is the, um, the Fox apparatus now that Roger Ailes is gone and, you know, the Murdoch family has had kind mm-hmm. of their fissure that they've had, is it still as influential on Trump as it once was? Um, or is that kind of, and is yeah. it still internally as conservative as it once was? Yeah, I mean, I think it's influential in that Trump has his relationships with his specific hosts. So, you know, Fox and Friends or Lou Dobbs or Sean Hannity are are the shows that are like clearly the most um, unabashedly pro-Trump. And I find Tucker Carlson's show kind of ideologically the most interesting because he, in many ways, on, um, on like immigration and other things, is very much 
uh, in Trump's world. But on foreign policy, I mean, we just talked about when Trump was thinking about bombing Iran after they shot down our drone last year, you know, Tucker Carlson called Trump or they spoke on the phone and he said, you know, this is insane. You want to get out of the Middle East. Doing this would just, you know, get us deeper in. And Trump listened. And I think, you know, there are... um, I think Trump looks at Fox News from, you know, as, you know, these are his people. And so Tucker Carlson represents kind of the isolationist wing of Trumpism. And then you have, you know, Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs as kind of the the um, more traditional uh, hawkish GOP wing of of Trumpism. And so I, I feel like that is really his his kitchen cabinet. It's it's not it's not that Fox News like I guess another way of answering your question is in the old world, Roger Ailes had that relationship with the Republican Party, right? So Ailes would be calling, you know, um, the, the Bush White House or John Boehner or the Republicans on the Hill and giving them talking points and ideas. Now Trump goes to the direct hosts themselves. And has the the institution itself gone through any changes or or no? I mean, it, not really. It's you know, is there like an up and coming kind of like person or group or something that that you think like? I mean, when I look at when I look at all these institutions that I've worked for and and across from, they've all they've all gone through changes. Mm-hmm. They've all kind of had a a moment where you know, the New York Times. I think there was a point in time where it was it clearly was trying to be down the middle. And mm-hmm. and I think covering the Trump administration has had a really difficult time doing that because he's a genius, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with a J. With a J. And, um, and I think that, um, uh, you know, every what, magazines, blogs, mm-hmm. you name it, has Fox gone through those changes or no? No, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's remarkable how you know stable it has been. I actually, this is something I was wrong about. I think I gave interviews around the time my book came out in 2014, saying how when Ailes goes, you know, Fox is going to be like a house of cards that's just going to collapse because it can't survive beyond the kind of cult leader that's created it. But in fact, it's been this like incredibly stable machine that just has continued to run and. And the Fox audience loves Donald Trump and the shows that are pro-Trump get crazy ratings and they just, they ride it out. I mean, I think the change that you're talking about um, is going to take place after, you know, whatever comes next after Trump, because they're just riding this wave um, of the kind of old, white, angry, middle-class audience that watches Fox and, and it's working and there's no, there's no really incentive to, to change. When you talk about talk to people about the impeachment hearing, does it have any bearing or impact on on the election, or is it just a an annoyance? You know, I feel like you know there was it was it was pretty much uh, a foregone conclusion that you know Trump was going to be impeached and then acquitted in the Senate. Um, you know, I think the Bolton news earlier this week briefly, you know, caused people to open their eyes a little bit. And that was when he said he would, he would testify. And there was a lot of... Um, Why did that open people's eyes? Well, I mean, A, he hates Trump. Everyone knows that. I've reported that. He, um, he And he hates Jared and Ivanka. I mean, Bolton thinks they're lightweights. And, um, and so the idea that Bolton would uh, potentially be a wild card and would show up... Um, the Senate and talk about really what happened with Ukraine and and connect a lot of the dots that so far Republicans have been able to say, oh, well, there's no, you know, no one was in the room with Trump, but Bolton was in the room. That said, you know, Mitch McConnell is just 
you know, I think when the history of this period will be written, I think Mitch McConnell will probably be the most consequential person um, in American politics because Mitch McConnell has no interest in subpoenaing um, uh, John Bolton, and McConnell's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that this trial is just a rubber stamp. And so if we had, you know, a real, um, you know, Republican Party that put country ahead of its own tribal loyalties, you know, we might we might see impeachment matter. This is going to be... And there's nothing that anyone can do to force Mitch McConnell to actually have a hearing, right? No. I mean, I guess you would need, you would need four Republican senators to split um, to, to vote for a motion to, to call witnesses. But, you know, beyond um, Mitt Romney and Susan, I'm very concerned, Collins, I mean, there's no, <laughs> you know, there's, we're really seeing no defections amongst Republicans. And McConnell, again, going back to, I think he is, I would, I would love to read uh, a piece that gets into the bare knuckle tactics of how he's able to keep those Republicans in line. Because privately, you know, we, you know, and we know, they all hate Trump. They all think Trump's, you know, a genius with a J. I mean, they, the idea that they're not able to act on their private thoughts is, I think, a testament to McConnell's power. Do you think that they like McConnell? I think they're scared of him. I mean, I think he has a hold on on his caucus, and I think they respect him for getting so much of the Republican agenda through. I mean, think of the judges they've got, you know, oh, 100 plus judges. And, <clears throat> well, and, that, and that's going to come home to roost decades from now. Yeah. You know? So I feel like if you're a Republican, you're looking at McConnell and you're you're saying, well, you've gotten everything we've ever wanted through, so you're gonna you're gonna do what he says. But yet, but yet, McConnell is is the most unpopular senator in the entire Congress, and pretty much may lose his seat next year. Um, this year, uh, that doesn't play a role in his thinking. Well, you know, I, I thought about that. I mean, uh, you know, I've been looking at. Um, I think a key metric will be looking at Trump's popularity in Kentucky, because I've always wondered if McConnell's political future was really on the line, if he would break from from Trump. But I think the problem is that Trump is so popular in these conservative southern red states that um, McConnell would lose more voters than he would gain by breaking with Trump. When you, uh, there was a report last, this week or last week, and I couldn't actually even click on it because it made me so uh, upset, but the, re- the headline was that um, they, uh, they asked Republican voters who they would want to see in 2024. Oh, was it Don Jr.? It was Don Jr. and Ivanka. Oh, my God. I know. I Is saw Is this that. just like a, are we going to be stuck with these fucking people for like the next for the rest of our lives, almost like, you know, uh, some dynasty family that just won't go away or yeah, it's the upside down version of the Kennedys. Yeah, the, pretty much know. the upside. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I saw that. And I mean, I, I, on the one hand, you could read those polls and say, well, Mike Pence is first with 40% and Don Jr. was what, number two at 26. But, um, I think the, uh, a lot of that with a grain of salt is just name ID, right? I mean, these are people who, They'll say, oh, I've heard of this guy. I would vote for him. So you have to discount these early polls. But I do think we're going to be living with Don Jr. longer than we'd be living with Ivanka. Why do you say that? Because Don Jr. is a committed right-wing demagogue, junior proto-Trump. I mean, he is... 
he's Trump, literally Trump Jr., and there is an audience for that kind of politics. There is no audience for Ivanka Trump's, you know, out for herself, I don't believe in anything politics. I mean, she can't come back to New York, at least in any kind of meaningful way. I mean, she wouldn't win a Republican primary because she's not willing to run on, you know, the issues that Trump actually helps him win the kind of the white nationalism. And so I feel like she couldn't win a democratic primary because everyone hates Trump. Exactly. So I feel like after the white house, Ivanka is going to be a little bit on an Island. And I don't know what that politically that doesn't, I don't think give her a platform, but Don Jr. Can literally just do Donald Trump campaign again and, you know, or run for governor of California. I'm sorry, uh, Florida. uh, Or, I mean, I don't think upstate New York's conservative. I don't think Don Jr. Could ever have a role in New York politics. But I feel like, yeah, I mean, he could, he could, they could relocate to Florida, bunk down at Mar-a-Lago, and we could see, you know, Governor Don Jr. and then run for president in 10 years. Is that nauseating to you as it is for me? I mean, it's like, it's sickening. I mean, we're, yeah, I mean, we're, um, these, these are our people, right? This is our generation. So we're going to be, you know, I'm sure I wondered, I, I'd be curious what the like baby boomers felt about like Nixon. Um, but the Nixons all sort of went away after Watergate. They just like disappeared. Well, they, but that's because he was properly yeah, yeah, pushed yeah, out. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, it seems like it's impossible to get. The other thing I think about though, too, is, um, there's that famous Pauline Kael quote, you know, the New Yorker's long, uh, longtime uh, movie critic about how she didn't know one person that voted for Richard Nixon in 72. And he obviously won in a landslide. I mean, part of me wonders if I'm going to wake up the day after election in 20, uh, 2020 and Trump's going to be reelected. And it's going to be this thing where, you know, people on the coasts, you know, thought, think Trump is a nightmare. And there's just this whole other um, side of the country that w- we're not in daily contact with who um, who loves what he is doing, and I think the thing that I, I, I look, I think that the thing that I when I ask people who's going to win, that I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anybody but Trump. There's a lot of people that hope. There's like I think it's going to be Trump. I hope he doesn't. Mm-hmm. The part where I get confused, and you know, I've had pollsters on the show that have talked about this and so on. Is is You've seen a lot of people come out and say like, I screwed up. I voted for him. I thought he was, you know. I thought he was a real, real, real Republican. I thought he was going to be more stable. I thought this, mm-hmm. that, and the other. And sure, like the that number of of his approval rating and disapproval rating has been a straight line mm-hmm. through and through. Maybe it's dropped a couple of points. Like I think that's just a mathematical yeah. anomaly, honestly. It, um, but I think that at the end of the day, it's if unless the Democrats can get people to the polls, he's winning, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean he's. He's never cracked fifty percent, but he's also never dropped below what third low thirties, right? It's, he's, I think, thirty four was the lowest. Yeah. but that's, but you know, it, and he's impeached. I mean, on paper, you know, he should be in the twenties or teens, and that he has this stable um, base of support that never seems to to change. I mean, you know, if you talk to Democrats back in eighty four, you know, Ronald Reagan was this right wing um, guy who was going to start World War three and. And yet he won in a landslide. And I just, I just, I wonder if the Democrats are misreading the country in such a way that lightning could strike twice and we're going to have a second term. When you look at one of the things I've been surprised about with the Trump administration is there have been things that they have backed off on. So like 
even immigration at the border, um, when they were separating families, which I think was the most diabolical mm-hmm. thing of this administration, um, the you know there was so much outcry that they backed mm-hmm. away. You know, there've been lots of things that they've like pulled back on. Now, I assume a lot of that is because um, Trump wants to try to win in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. If he does win, do you think that it's just? I, I guess the, here's this is a, the the question. It's kind of a little complicated, but if he wins, does he not give a shit anymore about anything? Because he's won and there's nothing else he's trying to win, right? So he can be like, fuck everyone and just do whatever the hell he wants or do nothing or whatever. Or is he still going to want to be liked by everyone and that's all that's going to drive him forward? Or is there going to be some version in the middle where we just kind of, it's just going to be a close your eyes and throw that dart again? I mean, I feel like the best way to answer that question is just to look at what he's done his entire life, which is to seek approval and attention and um, and so I think what scares me is I think we'll just get a more extreme version of what we have now because there'll be no there'll be no breaks or no checks and balances. I mean, he's not going to face um, a reelection. I don't think he really gives a shit about um, his children in that, you know, if he burns any bridge for them having a future, I don't think that's ever really crossed his mind. Um, you know, he bankrupted all of his companies and is he's never really he's lived for himself and so that's scary to me that that he would be you know having four years of of a president with you know absolutely no no um guardrails and uh and um and so i feel like that's that's also what democrats have to think about is um is do you want a second term where Trump is going to be free. You know, he doesn't care about his legacy. He's somebody he that... doesn't? Well, I mean, I, I feel like he doesn't care about his legacy in that his legacy is going to be what it is. I mean, he's written his legacy. Um, but he's got a, this massive ego He that is, that is, you know... I mean, the thing, the one thing that that makes me, gives me some level of hope and happiness is I do believe that at some point, you know... He he has as a president he will have peaked with his attention levels, and I think at some point. But do you think like so in a second <clears throat> term like do you think Trump would say you know what I was wrong I think we really need to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement I mean I just feel like no I don't think that's going to happen but I wonder if like <clears throat> he's not a Republican right he just isn't no like he um uh he he's run on every single platform independent Democrat Republican you name it like and if if, if he could have. If, if he could have taken over the Democratic Party, we, there'd be a Democratic Trump in yeah. office, right? But but what I do wonder is, like, he's very calculated, mm-hmm. and he, the, you know, this is not the end game for him being president. There's something no. else after it. And I, I wonder, it's like, what is he, what decisions does he make if he is president that, again, that Well, are, then here's another way to think about it. What decisions... W- would guarantee the most that he'd make the most money post presidency because that has always been what's motivated him is is how to get rich and and monetize being Donald Trump does you know does being a more you know extreme version of what we have now like he can start Trump TV he'd start the next Fox News I mean or or if he cuts deals with Democrats and builds infrastructure and and reforms immigration. I just don't know how that gets him. Not like it's not like Democrats will start staying at Trump resorts 
for that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like he, he has his audience now and, and he wants to now just be as popular as he can with that 40%. All right. So last couple of questions for you. Um, uh, one of the things that I've been quite perplexed about is, you know, my phone this week has been kind of digging with these news alerts, not just about Iran, but about all of the climate change things that the Trump administration has been doing, um, where they're trying to roll back every single solitary mm-hmm. thing that makes the world a better place. Yeah. What is it? There was there were some decisions that they've made in this administration that have made sense to me. From I don't agree with them in any way, shape, or form, but like you know, that have made sense because they they want to grow the economy and they want to give, you know, oil um, or gas or, you know, whatever it is, whatever company and corporation, uh, the ability to 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 do more without the restrictions. So they've rolled the restrictions back. But there are restrictions that literally just no one's even asking for. Yeah. Like I and what is the is this just a fuck you? Yeah, this is what the, the child separation policy and this are the two things that eat at me the most about what this presidency has meant because I think Trump, there's a certain gleefulness, like a joy he takes in destroying nature and the planet. And it's, I don't know if it's, you know, Rush Limbaugh and other Republicans have this too. They just, it's almost like, well, it pisses off Democrats and, you know, who's going to tell me that I can't, you know, cut down this forest or burn this or it's, I don't understand why. I don't know why there's there's no one benefits and and um, and we're going to be living with the consequences of it. And that's I think you're onto it. I mean, I think there he just he likes doing it. There's no other explanation because you know a lot of car companies weren't asking for these rollbacks, no. um, uh, uh, and so it, he just has to be doing it because. Um, he gets some pleasure out of it. And you don't think he like looks at his like grandkids and thinks like, oh, I'm making a really shitty world for them to live in. No, I mean, again, I, I don't think he's not capable of thinking about anyone but himself. And even even if he did think about them, he'd be like, oh, well, they're rich. They'll they'll figure it out. They'll buy an eye. They'll move to New Zealand or they'll have some some way that rich people avoid consequences. So in the same vein, there's been the fires in, um, uh, in Australia. That Which have- is why Russell Crowe, when he um, didn't... Um, uh, when he ex- uh, won the award for best actor, wasn't there to accept. He stayed back in Australia. So one of the stories that I recently read about this is that Murdoch's publications in Australia, Rupert Murdoch's publications in Australia, have been for many years and still currently in the midst of the fires have been pushing uh, this ideology that, um, you know, that, that climate change is bullshit. And, um, and there's a, I read this piece about um, <clears throat> there were these fire, I think it was in the New York Times, the lead of the story was there's a group of firefighters in Australia and they're they're uh, trying to clear away for for this fire so that it won't spread and and the chief fire officer says like cut that tree down and one of the firefighters says it's going to piss off the greenies and mm-hmm. the, a greenie is a, an environmentalist who would be upset that you that you cut the tree down which is a, just a fucking moronic thing yeah. to say for a firefighter who's like trying to save people's mm-hmm. lives but but it the point of the story was like that even a firefighter who had, he explained that he had felt that way because of the Murdoch stuff and and this is like Murdoch's home country like I I I'm from England like I wouldn't like be cheering if the country was on fire. I'd yeah. be like, holy shit, like we have to like do something. That's where I was born. Like, isn't there, I guess like, is there any interest in these people 
do they feel any remorse? Does Murdoch I mean, think like, oh shit, like I should, I should have my publications change the way they write about these things? No, I mean, I feel like, and you know, best analogy or metaphor I can think of, of Rupert Murdoch is to think of a shark. I mean, he's literally just keeps swimming in one direction. He's done it his whole life. I mean, um, in the, um, in the sixties, he went to the UK and left Australia to reinvent himself um, as a London tabloid publisher. And then in the 70s, he moved to New York. And when he wanted to start a, a, a TV station in the 80s in, in America, he had to become an American citizen. I mean, he has just never looked back his whole life. He makes decisions. People who work it for the Murdochs say that he will just cut people loose who he's known for decades without any um, compassion. I mean, he just has an ability to compartmentalize and just move forward. And I think the tragedy is that now we're seeing this you know, manifested physically. I mean, the, 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 his own country is literally on fire because of a lot of his politics. And I don't think he personally, you know, beyond whatever his, his press people put out there about how he feels, I think, you know, everything I've reported on him would say that he doesn't actually care. I mean, this is, he believes in, he's basically a, a libertarian in a lot of ways. And, and he's just, he's on to the next thing. I saw people tweeting that they're calling him Uncle Satan. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, James Murdoch, you know, now that he got, you know, bounced out of uh, Murdoch world, I mean, one of their big fights between father and son was about climate and, and James was trying to push uh, his father to, to, you know, adapt and Rupert wasn't having it. Crazy. Crazy. It's, just, it's like these, these, the what's, what is crazy to me is that these are the people that run the world. Yeah. And, and they don't, and they have the resources so that they're not going to bear any of the, the true consequences of it. Gabe, this has been fascinating as always. Yep. Thank you once again. And congrats. Thanks on for the, uh, hosting me with uh, a break from New York winter. So of thanks. course, my pleasure. Thanks to my guest today, Gabe Sherman. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And if it's not a nice review, don't leave a review at all. Just five stars. We love this. It's amazing. Best thing ever. Blah, blah, blah. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsor this week, Skillshare. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.